This is iUniverse Radio, brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is your opportunity to hear firsthand from authors about their new books. It's an in-depth discussion about the author's passion about the development of his or her story in their own words. It's an inside look into the characters and the plot and how the story all came together. Here is iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, The Countess and the Mob, the untold story of Marijan Stevic Kinigo and Mafia Lord Johnny Rosselli. And the author is Maureen Hughes, and she joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Maureen. Good morning, Steve. Well, good to have you with us, and this is just a fascinating story. It's it's uh, your uh, biography, uh, kind of a section of the life of Merrigan Kinigo, but Merrigan Kinigo, what a colorful woman, uh, a woman with many, many talents, but at the same time, she also had a very dark side. So we're going to talk about some of these things. Well, first of all, tell us how you met her and how you got so interested in her. I served as Marijan's uh, bodyguard in the late 80s when she was hospitalized. This was something she required. Um, I did not know her up at, until that time. Um, during her stay at the hospital, uh, she, after going to sleep the first night, she began talking in her sleep. And she brought up some very interesting questions. She kept asking uh, what Johnny had done with her husband, Michael. Well, later, I went to an art exhibit in Champaign, Illinois, where her paintings were being displayed. And... The woman I saw there at the art exhibit was totally different from the woman I saw and met in the hospital. Uh, she was very gracious. Uh, uh, she just flowed through the crowd, spoke to everybody by their first name. She was a very gracious hostess. So she, as you uh, describe her, she had looks, wealth, and a name that would command attention because she is called Countess. Now tell us about why she is called Countess. That's correct. Uh, she married Count Michael Kinigo. Michael was an Albanian count uh, by birth, and his history goes back uh, many, many years. Um, he worked as a journalist for the INS in Rome, Italy. And when Marijan was in Rome to study the newspaper business, she met Michael. And a romance blossomed, and eventually their marriage. In marrying Michael, she automatically became a countess. And again, this was another dream of Marijan's, uh, besides attaining wealth 
and notoriety. She very much wanted to be titled. And she also wanted to know the rich and famous. She did. Uh, her vacations uh, took her to Hollywood and Las Vegas, where she met movie stars and actually became very, very good friends with one Loretta Young. Very famous. Very famous Loretta Young. So she had her own agenda. She wanted to do things her way, and she wasn't at all shy about using people to get her way. Not at all, even if that meant using the mob. So thus, Johnny Rosselli comes into the picture. Tell us about Johnny. Johnny was born on the East Coast, and because of uh, some infractions that he was responsible for, he left the East and came to Chicago and worked with the Chicago outfit under the leadership of Al Capone. While in Chicago, his health issues uh, got worse, and Al Capone felt that Johnny could be uh, very beneficial to the outfit uh, by going to California and Las Vegas. Uh, And this is where Marijan met Johnny. And of course... Marijan's husband, Michael, that you're talking about, uh, there's there's a big question. It's uh, We're not going to say very much, but he has something to do with JFK. Yes, he did. And to the best of my knowledge and many, many more, Johnny only confessed to Marijan. And he did so in Champaign, Illinois. So he did confess something that his involvement with the assassination of JFK? Yes, he did. So those details we'll leave to our reader. But uh, this man obviously has a lot of power in the mafia. And and Marijan likes to have power. Yes. Yes, she was power hungry. So where does this lead her? Uh, Give us some of the, the, uh, just some inside information about Marijan and some of the other people that she was trying to uh, use, especially she wanted to be on the big screen. Was that her big desire? Yes, it was. And she had a verbal run-in with uh, movie mongol uh, Cohen. And she also knew um, other very well-known movie producers. And this was back in the time when mafia money supported movie productions. So she had a lot of skeletons in the closet, because as you say, when you were uh, with her for that brief amount of time as her bodyguard, uh, she wouldn't let you turn out the light. She said, uh, almost in a whisper, you, you quote her as saying, Just keep the demons away from me, and I will be happy. Yes. The leaving the lights on occurred after the death of her husband. And this is um, written in the book as to what happened. Uh, There are the official 
report of Michael Kinnegoe's death is not the way it really happened. And when I spoke to uh, police officials in Rome, Italy, they stopped, you know, talking when I got to uh, discussing the publicized report of his death. And um, then later when I was in Italy, I spoke with the man in person, and he refused to actually verbalize, but he confirmed my suspicions with um, the nod of his head as to really what happened to Marijan's husband. Did she have a relationship with Johnny Rosselli more than just a friend? Oh, yes, and that, too, is mentioned in the book. Yes, she did. Now, you did a lot of research. How many years of research? Steve, um, I spent over three years uh, talking to people, and it I found this very intriguing. Um, a lot of people talked with me, oh, two or three, four times before they felt comfortable and before they trusted me in keeping their actual names. Um, out of the book, or even where they lived. Um, I spoke with a couple of former showgirls from Las Vegas who knew John F. Kennedy, who knew Marijan, and Johnny Roselli. Uh, one uh, I spoke to face-to-face. -face. Another one uh was still looking over her shoulders after all these years uh, and spoke with me with a petition uh, separating us. Um, I spoke with two professional guns. Years ago, we used to call them hitmen, but uh, today they go by professional guns. Um, they gave me a lot of information which is included in the book and again confirmed my suspicions with a lot of proof. So Marijan, Countess Marijan, she lived two lives. She had this public uh, persona. She was very involved in the community. She did much for society, you say. She did. Uh, and it, it is a shame that the dark side was so vivid. Uh, Marijan had the uh, capacity to afford uh, large donations to institutions in the advancement of education. Uh, but it seemed like in doing so, again, her agenda became very clear she wanted her name out there. It wasn't necessarily uh, for the sake of advancing a particular uh, purpose. Uh, yet, I think deep inside, uh, she did desire to help where she could. And again, with her uh, seemingly unlimited wealth, she could do this. 
She liked the self-promotion. That really drove her. I mean, it was something linked maybe to her past where, you know, she was always searching for love and, and, and recognition. Correct. Uh, her parents, uh, and I'm by no means uh, diminishing uh, their uh, background, they were, they were professional people. And I think in doing so, they were constantly business-orientated. She being, she, Marijan, being an only child, possibly did not get the love and the attention that she, by nature, required. So she went in search for it in other areas. Now, you talk about the word revenge when we talk about the Countess. Now, why revenge is part, why is revenge part of her? Marijan, as we discussed earlier, um, liked getting her way. If someone, friend, foe, whatever, would betray her in some way, she did seek revenge, and she made no bones about it. And this is where she called upon her uh, longtime friend, Johnny Roselli, in settling a score, a personal score. Did she have a score to settle with her husband? Yes. What, what, what can you tell us about that without giving everything away? Marriage in again, wanted her own little group of people, her close friends, and then there was another group of associates. Her husband committed a sin, if you will, against her. And in her eyes, this was totally unacceptable. But it wasn't unacceptable for her to commit the same sin. So she had different standards for herself and for those around her and was obviously willing to use people, I mean, really using her husband to become a countess, right? That probably was more than more important to her than any love she had with him. Yes, yes. Um, Marijan told me she truly loved her husband, Michael. Um, She actually was married uh, seven times. Uh, She was married to the World War II hero, Colonel Edwin Dice. And there's uh, an Air Force base in Texas named after him. That particular husband was, I believe, the love of her life. But as we all know, he was uh, killed, uh, not during the war, but after the war, uh, in a plane test. Edwin Dice uh, was a survivor of the Bataan Death March during World War II. Marijan seems to be the type of person that we would love to be around, but at the same time, we would probably, if we knew more about her, we would be afraid of her. Exactly. Exactly. That's the thing. Uh, it's a shame, because Marijan was a likable person up to a point. 
I would like to also tell the listeners that The Countess and the Mob is the only book written on marriage in Stivic Kinnego. There have been a couple of books that have mentioned her, but uh, not a full account of this story. Well, tell us how to get your book, Maureen. Oh, sure. You can order it through iUniverse. The website is www.iUniverse.com. And, of course, you can order it from any online book retailers. They can order the book for you if you want to go somewhere else as well. Uh, We really appreciate Maureen, having you on this edition of iUniverse Radio, thank you so much. It was fun talking to you, Steve. Thank you. That was Maureen Hughes. She is the author of her book, The Countess and the Mob, the untold story of Marijan Stevick, Kinigo, and Mafia Lord Johnny Rosselli. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. East Texas Meals on Wheels needs your help. For the first time in 35 years, Meals on Wheels has a waiting list for meals. Currently, we serve more than 3,500 meals per day. With the help of donors and volunteers, we can eliminate the waiting list and serve more meals and ensure all who need a hot, nutritious meal are served. You can call our offices toll-free at 1-800-451-2912 to find out more about how you can help. You can also visit our website at www.mealsonwheelseasttexas.org. Again, toll-free at 1-800-451-2912 or visit us on the web at www.mealsonwheelseasttexas.org. After all, when a person needs a meal, they need it today, not tomorrow. Thank you for helping Meals on Wheels. Saturdays on toginap.com. It's Author Talk. Get the story behind the story on fiction and literature, graphic novels, horror, mystery and crime novels, romance, science fiction and fantasy, westerns, history, humor, inspiration, and every genre. It's all on Author Talk. You'll get to hear new authors talk about their books. Take the opportunity to hear insights on what inspired them to write it. It's called Author Talk on toginet.com. And it's presented by Author House, the leading provider of services to help authors publish, promote, and sell their book around the world. Author House has assisted more than 30,000 authors, producing over 40,000 titles. Author Talk with host Steve Jorgensen, every Saturday on Toginet.com. Radio with a cutting edge. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, The Difference Between a Boy and a Man, 75 Words That Illustrate the Gap. And the author is Amy Modica Myers, and Amy joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Amy. Hello. How are you doing today, Steve? Doing good. I'm, I'm going to read a, a few statements that you have made in general about your book. Uh, one thing you say is the purpose 
of the difference between a boy and a man is to challenge the myths and to help a maturing boy realize that there is more to being a man than height and weight or a chronological number. Obviously, the truth is that a boy does not become a man by one event. Manhood is not a destination, a line drawn in time when a boy journey ends. So we're going to talk about all that, what that means. And and you also say there is a realization that you want your readers to understand, a realization that the ability or desire to commit acts of violence does not make a boy a man. And and also, second, that every life has value and therefore deserves respect. And third, that every life should have hope. So, a lot in this book. <laughs> you, you, you know, yeah, you, you're really trying to cover a lot of material. Why did you write it? Why did you write it, Amy? Well, I wrote it originally about 20 years ago for my son. I was a single parent, and my son had no strong role model. The role model... At that his own father had, had, he very proudly told me that he was never going to grow up. And, you know, he never did. (laughs) Well, I didn't want my son to go through life the way his father did, although he had never really known his father very much or spent much time with him. I still was concerned. And so I started thinking, as my son turned 17 and, you know, was getting ready to leave the house, on his own, what I wanted him to take with him, what I could, uh, impression I could leave with him. And so these words kept popping into my head, such as commitment and violence and emotions. And I could think of the difference of how a boy would respond to violence compared to how a man would. And therefore, I just mentally gathered a group of words, and I finally decided to write them down. I wrote them in a little you know, one of these books that you get at the store is blank, and I wrote a blank book out for him. We went on a hike to the Big Four Ice Caves up here in Washington State, and I presented this book to him, and it was sort of like our rite of passage. He went off and read the book and came back, and then we discussed it a little. And that was a long time ago. (laughs) Since then, he's been in the Marine Corps, served in Iraq, He's had some ups and downs in his life, but I think he's turned into a really fine young man. And then in 2005, uh, I had by that time gained two bonus sons and learned a lot more about boys and men. And also I became very concerned about America's uh, prison population growing and all the senseless deaths that I've seen with gang activities and uh, the disrespect for, that teenagers seem to have for themselves and, and you know, other boys and girls. And so I updated the book, and it's kind of based on, uh, you know, it, it helps boys of all age, but it also, I really want to reach at-risk youth, boys who do not have a strong uh, father figure to help them. And, and that's why I wrote it originally and why I rewrote it back in 2005. Well, you state that your book has a little over 10,000 words. It has 75 keywords. Right. And and, uh, each keyword has one page and with two paragraphs. The first paragraph describes a boy's point of view and the second a man's. Well, that's really interesting. You know, we would think that a woman wouldn't write a book like this. Exactly, and that's a lot of, of what I get. And uh, my concern with writing the book, 
was that I did not want to feminize boys. I, you know, it's very important that a man be a man and not an extension of a woman. It's, so it was hard for me to write individual words and, and keep the man. I've had a lot of wonderful male role models in my life, which I have used their uh, life experiences and my observations of how they behave in different circumstances to give the man part of the book. And I've also had a lot of, you know, boys involved in my life. And so I had a clear comparison of the two. Uh, An interesting thing with selling the book so far, I had thought I would sell the book to women because I am a woman, as you said, and therefore you see this female writing a book about men. And I have had men kind of, oh, why are you doing this? But most of my buyers, which surprised me, have been men. And they buy it for their sons or they buy it for themselves. I had expected that most of my buyers would be women buying the books for uh, their sons and grandsons, nephews. And that has happened, too. But I've been really surprised that the majority of my books have been bought by men. You also say it is easy and quick to read and does not need to be read cover to cover. Rather, the reader can fan through it and pick a word or words that interest him at that given time. So 75 words that illustrate this gap between a boy and a man. Let's talk about some of those words. Now, why did you start at the end of the alphabet? I started with youth and ended with adolescence, which are not actually concepts or actions, but actually a state of being, you know, at that point of life. And I started with youth because, for me, the most important thing that a boy needs to realize before he can read the rest of the book is that he's not going to be young forever. He has to first be willing to grow and to mature. And so that's why I started with the word youth. And then I ended it with adolescence because I want the boy to realize that he should never give up completely the boy within himself. He needs to remember how to be a boy so that he can be a better father. And and then I go on to use, like you said, it's in alphabetical order backwards. Some of my key words are violence, uh, trust, vandalism is a big thing that young men seem to think they have to do. Truth is very important. Tenacity. My son has an enormous amount of tenacity, so he was a very inspirational to me to write this uh, short page on tenacity. I go on with uh, loyalty, knowledge. I even have, when I updated the book, I put in rape and suicide and murder, which uh, are pretty heavy words. (laughs) but I thought they needed to be in there. Interesting comment that you made that uh, you wanted your son and you also want young boys to understand that they won't be young forever. Now, boy, I remember, I can still remember being 19 thinking 25 is like a million years away. And yet, boy, it's, it's a, it's really is. A, that's such an important point that you know, whether we like it or not, time is marching on, and we are going to face adult situations and problems. Right, yes. And I'm hoping that my book can guide 
a young man to to see the difference of how uh, uh, between how a boy and a man would look at well, let's say leadership. And I've had a young men tell me that they like this word because uh, it gave him an idea. He had a, a dream of becoming a officer in the military. This is one of my young readers. He's a 14-year-old son of a friend. And he, his particular favorite word in the book was leadership and how he could uh, look at that as he reached for his goal of being an arm, a Marine officer, actually, is what he wants to be. Yeah. Why don't you, let's go into some detail on just a few of these words to give our listeners a, a real specific example of, uh, and some examples of how you have uh, focused on these key words, these words of principles and, and reality and activity. Uh, some of them, like you say, very negative, like murder, <laughs> beyond, you know, yeah. it's very serious and and also, but but like you just mentioned, leadership, and of course, you know, I know you have loyalty and you have love. Let's take, let's just take, uh, let's take the word loyalty. Okay, loyalty for a young boy can be very temper, you know, temporary. He can base his loyalty on a friend that's going to get him something, or you know, a girl that's going to give him what he wants, you know, and. And he'll fight for one cause one day and an opposite the next day, depending on how it's going to give him, like I say, love, glory, power, or money. His loyalty will shift from one uh, person or thing to another. While as a man, he ponders the circumstances. He, he studies the person or the event, let's say the political party or the religion. He would study those before he chooses his loyalty, and that's not going to be something that he does overnight or within a, a few weeks. I mean, sometimes it could be a quick decision, but sometimes it takes time, and a man realizes that. And so once he chooses what he wants to be loyal to, he adheres to that faithfully, whether it's a person, a cause, and a, you know, an idea, or, or his own country. What about the uh, principle of life called failure? Uh, failure. Failure, a lot of times boys are afraid to uh, do anything, to adventure, to try something new, or do it because they're afraid of failure. Failure basically cripples them. And, and so they either do not do anything at all to prevent the failure, or when they do try something and they fail, they will um, never take risks again, and they become afraid, basically, to live their own life. Well, a man views failure as an opportunity to learn and an opportunity to grow, and he sees it as just part of the process, so he never lets it uh, immobilize him or it makes him a fear to make changes. He'll try again and again. What about love? Love, love uh, again, is a misinterpreted word for boys. They'll think of it as, they'll confuse it with lust or uh, infatuation, and they'll see it kind of as superficial 
and therefore they won't make the commitment that they need to make for it. They'll, you know, they'll fall in love with the girl because she's pretty or a car because it's fast and sporty, whereas a man will look more behind the, beneath the surface of something. He'll seek compassion and empathy, loyalty and honesty in the relationships. And then he accepts that uh, attraction and infatuation will, you know, maybe initiate the relationship, but that's not love. Love is accepting a person for their faults and their their good parts and their bad parts. And uh, basically, love is not one person becoming, or not, or excuse me, but not, two people becoming one, as so many people think it is. But I see love as if you really love somebody, you become a part of that person. And so really true love between two people is one person becoming two people. You don't want to give up your own identity or who you are, which so many women sometimes will make a mistake. And I've seen some men do it too, give up their ambitions and their goals so that they can become one. But you need to keep your own individual self, and you need to also see that other person as equal to you and kind of parallel to you. That's how I see, uh, I think a man should see love. Now, you've already won some awards for your book, The Difference yes, I, Between a Boy and a Man. Tell us about those. Okay, I got honorable mention at the New England Book Festival and at the London Book Festival. And then I received the Silver Mom's Choice Award from uh, Mom's Choice Awards Organization, which is a very nice award to get. And uh, this is an organization that gives out these awards for books and magazines and toys and clothes and etc. So it's really exciting to get that award. And you're also contributing a portion of the proceeds of your book, to an organization that helps at-risk youth. That's correct. Right now, I'm uh, giving my money, a portion of my profits, to Domestic Violence Services of Snohomish County. They uh, help both men and women and children who have been victims of domestic violence, so I'm sharing my money with them right now. I'm also interested in, here in Everett, we have a, a place called Cocoon House, which helps uh, homeless teenagers. They have a wonderful organization, and I'd like to share my profits with them, too. Well, Amy, tell us how to get your book. You can get it through Barnes & Noble's website, Amazon website, or through the publisher's website, which is iUniverse.com. You can order it through them, or you can even order it through my website, uh, page, which is com. Well, Amy, thank you. Thank you for being on iUniverse Radio. Well, thank you, Steve. I really appreciated the interview. That was Amy Modica Myers. She is the author of her book, The Difference Between a Boy and a Man, 75 Words That Illustrate the Gap. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Hi, everybody. This is Pete Six of Beatles and Beyond. 
why don't we all come together and hear some of the tracks off the latest Beatles release on this radio station. Why don't you look up the schedules on this radio station and join me and Beatles listeners everywhere to hear these latest releases from the Beatles on Beatles and Beyond with Pete Dix. Maybe if I write a book, it will be the thing that keeps me alive. Those are the troubled words of a new 16-year-old author with her first thought-provoking book, What Gives? Published by Togi Entertainment. The author kept a diary during her dark teenage times, which turned into a 360-page suicide note with a happy ending. Texas Monthly describes teen author Chelsea Marie and her new book, What Gives, in this provocative way. We've plunged from page to page, not because of the young diarist despondency. Depression is not especially attractive or compelling, but because we are fascinated to see that while she is fending off demons on one hand, she is writing verse with the other. What Gives is available at whatgivesbook.com and national bookstores. Readers of What Gives are giving rave reviews. All social scientists, teachers, and students should use this book as a learning tool. What Gives is available at whatgivesbook.com and national bookstores. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Move On with Parkinson's, an inspiring true story is told by a PD patient and the author, Michael Stanfield. And Michael joins us now on this special interview on iUniverse Radio brought to you by Author Hive. Hello, Michael. Hi, Steve. I'm pleased to be here. Well, it's really an honor to have you on the show. Uh, this is about Parkinson's disease. You know firsthand because you have it and have had it for some time, and your whole goal is to help that person who's just discovering that they have this this disease and give them some hope, right? That's absolutely correct because what I discovered in the first uh, beginning of my problems with this disease is that there are lots and lots of things that you can go wrong, but you can make your whole world turn around and be right and keep it that way. Well, it's a uh, surprise kind of a disease because it sneaks up on you, so to speak, right? It just kind of very uh, slowly some things started changing, and it took you a while before you realized there was something going on. Yeah, it's a long while. We're talking years. Uh, I used to have a lot of uh, talents, you might say, or gifts from God, things that I could do that were uh, useful. And gradually, I started having trouble doing those things, and they had and that involved my hands and my uh, posture. I was becoming stooped, but it happened very slowly. No way that I could have tell, told that I was sick, because the uh, the problem that uh, I ran into was that, uh, and another problem. Guess what it is? It's forgetting. I, you do in later years, and I just forgot what I was going to say. So I'll have to, to <laughs> regroup a little bit. Um, 
what what happened to me was that I went for probably about 10 years thinking I had arthritis, uh, thinking I had other rather hopefully uh, not profound diseases. But when I finally was diagnosed, it was only six years ago, uh, I was on that long road, and, and that's the one that uh, well, I'll tell you more about. Sure. And at first, you were extremely fearful for the future. I was, uh, I was abs- absolutely terrified. I said to Jean when I, I came home the, the day of the uh, diagnosis, and I w- she wasn't with me at the time, but I told her that my life is over, as I know it at least. My life is over, and she put up with that, as I said, uh, for a couple of days. And then he said, we're, she said, we're going to find out what we're going to do, and we're going to do it. She's like a, an Army drill sergeant. And I really appreciate that because that was the right thing, and uh, uh, we we got with a really great uh, neurologist, and we got a really great uh, team uh, helping me at home, including the exercise. The personal trainer uh, has been wonderful, and uh, I, I've got myself pointed in a good direction now. I wrote all that book. Nobody helped me with it. I did the artwork on the front, and uh, I'm proud proud to say that it has been my best achievement in my life has been dealing with this disease. Well, you've been married 49 years, and as you say, your wife gave you uh, just a couple days to have a pity party, and it's time to get on with life, right? That's that's what she said. She said, well, first we're, we're going to learn a little about the disease, and she read to me, and I said, I don't want to hear that stuff. I'm, I, I, I can't do anything about it. And then she finally said, and she got our son, who is a, lives in New Orleans, and in fact, he happens to work for the, guess who? New Orleans Saints football team. <laughs> um, uh, thanks, Mike. Uh, I'll get a plug-in for you later. Uh, <laughs> um, uh, he, he, he found a world-class um, doctor, uh, a neurologist, uh, who had actually um, uh, done some work around the, the, the Saints team. And uh, so he, he already had evaluated this. This was a, uh, an outstanding uh, world-class uh, doctor. And in two days, we had a, uh, an appointment with him in, in New Orleans, and we uh, uh, were on our way. He, when I went in, I, I, I really looked terrified, I think. And he said, uh, I, I, I told him that that I was afraid that I was going to be in a wheelchair. And he said, no way, you'll never be in a wheelchair, and we're going to take care of you, don't worry. And I I followed his advice, and he's been right all along. So in listening to you and reading some of your thoughts, it sounds like a person who discovers that they have Parkinson's, uh, their caregivers, their families, they just got to have this attitude that they're going to confront this thing head on. That's right. Absolutely, head on. There's no take no prisoners. You, this is the this is a battle of your life, and you won't like where you're headed if if you don't do something to get yourself on the right course. Now you quote Walt Disney, and you say, "If you can dream it, you can do it." So this has become an important part of your psyche is that you just have to stay this positive every day. That's. That's right. You, you, uh, every day is different. You know, Parkinson's is not one disease. It's a whole series of disorders within the body. And 
having a, a good attitude means getting yourself busy and get get as good as you can out of what you've got because it turns out that what anyone has is is a lot more than they realize. Um, and uh, the, the Walt Disney reference you made is to the fact that I have enjoyed in the book, uh, in, um, between some of the uh, chapters, I'm looking at the book right now, here's one that uh, I like from Yogi, Yogi Berra. If you don't know where you are going, you'll end up someplace else. And, you know, that's, that's the kind of lighthearted attitude you've got to have. Uh, we joke around. We, we never take anything terribly seriously. We have a setback. We say, well, where do we go from here? Let's change the, or the doctor may say, we'll change the medication or whatever. The medication is, is the heart of the, uh, getting this disease under control. And it certainly um, is uh, easy to understand how it will be confusing to the new patient because there are a lot of disease, there are a lot of different medications. There's all kinds of uh, co competitive uh, products being recommended in the marketplace, uh, m bicycles and things that they people claim will cure the disease. Nothing will cure this disease. Uh, but any in any event, uh, I'm happy with what I've done, I'm, and I was hoping with this book to tell people my, what were my experiences. They weren't always good. I've had some uh, doors slammed in my face by the medical profession because they're too busy or they don't know enough about Parkinson. And um, it, it's really important to get a really good doctor. Give us a little of a glimpse of a day in your life. What is a day in the life of Michael Stanfield? Steve, um, we be begin the day at 5 a.m. sharp because uh, that's when I start the me medication. I take the medication 12 times a day. To some degree, there is some variation during the day to uh, help uh, me get through the day properly. And um, the um, next time, that I, after 5 a.m., to take this initial dose, I take another dose every three hours, so we're talking 8, 11, 2, etc. And um, then that's, without that, we, would, we, we must thank the people in the medical profession and the, in the industry that is, is continually working on these uh, medications. But the, the exercise is extremely important. Um, the, um, we have a personal trainer uh, on uh, two, two or three days of the week for an hour in the home. We go to a gym, we just came back now from, the, from a gym. I, I spend an hour in the gym three times a week and, and they, what do you know, they give me one day off, that's Sunday. Uh, yeah, but what we do beyond that point is we, we try on an hour to hour basis to judge where, what's going on. Sometimes I become extremely tired um, I think it's a combination of the medication that I take and the intensity that I, I work on a lot of different things, music and other things, uh, and, and so that's how I keep my mind busy. I think you have to have a productive life. You can't plan on sitting around with Parkinson's, no matter how good the medication or operations or whatever else can be, no one is going to get ever get over this uh, 
uh, without an intensive e effort. And uh, the, the the day ends. Uh, uh, usually, I'm so tired because I've done so much every day that by 8:30 I am in bed. And uh, Jean, my wife. Uh, asking, you know, what is there anything that she can bring me or what, whatever? And I said, well, why don't you bring me a magazine? I'll read that. And she said, you're kidding. You you pick up the magazine and in two seconds you're t you're asleep. And that's that's way the day ends. I just fold up and um, and get ready for the next day, which is going to be great. And we travel. We go to um, uh, New Orleans to visit our. Uh, actually, our doctor is in New Orleans. Uh, and we we uh, watch uh, movies and we 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 have a heck of a great life. It's it's better than I would ever ever imagined. So it's very demanding uh, s schedule, but at the same time, it's re it's renewing because you're pushing yourself physically and mentally, and it sounds like you're even pushing yourself emotionally to deal with all of this. Absolutely, that you hit the nail right on the head because. Um, this I I said I was in the military, and to me this is like a campaign, a battle, because that that disease is not going to go away on its own. It can be tamed, but it can't be killed. But my job is to keep it under control and do the right thing at the right time. And I get I get a lot of help. Everybody around me who knows me uh, is helpful, and uh, everyone you know it's it's wonderful. When you've been, I'm not going to say sick. I am not sick. I have a condition, <laughs> um, and it's it's wonderful to know that there are people that care about you. And uh, my sister called the uh, the other evening, and the first thing she out of her mouth was how how am I? And uh, so uh, there are people that are really rooting for me. And what you got to do, and if you're a new patient, you've got to realize that. Uh, you're going to have a limited time to get yourself down the right path. It can't be done forever because uh, the body, I think, probably gets into a, uh, a state that can't be reversed as easily. Uh, I, have been, I am told that there is damage to the brain by this disease, and you don't want to let that take, but it can be headed off with the proper treatment. So it's so important, no matter what the obstacles may be, is to have your dreams and to go after them. That's right. And you know what? Uh, in, in the book I talk about uh, courage. You do need to have courage to go do something that you don't feel like doing because you will not feel right every day. I feel great now. I mean, I've been, you know, my worst problem is I forget to take the medication. And the first time during the day that I realized I forgot is when I say to Jean, why do I feel so terrible? And she said, did you take your medication? Oh, sorry. And then I go take it, but now, now we've got another day that is partially uh, full back. But uh, on balance, this is not as bad as it, as it would have, I thought would have been before we found out about it. That's why we, that's why I decided that my doctor said he thought I should uh, document what I, the little story that we've just been chatting about, and uh, because he thought it was an important guide to, for, for other people, especially the, the newly diagnosed uh, people, 
and uh, I'm uh, I'm really grateful to the number of people I would be remiss without thanking my doctor and my uh, all the other people that have been working with me and the good friends and relatives. Um, we're going to w- win this war. We're, we're going to. I'm going to get this thing so under control that most people don't know I have Parkinson's disease. Now, I want that to be 100%. Nobody knows that I have Parkinson's, and I won't have to talk about it. I won't have to scold people for not taking their med- like myself for not taking their medication on time. We'll just do it. Why don't we close with you reading a few more quotes from famous people that mean so much to you, Michael? Well, thank you. Uh, here's one that I... Here's one that goes back a long way to Virgil. They can because they think they can. Uh, he's in my, all of these quotes have to do with the attack of the uh, people that, that have this disease on their uh, problems. There's a Chinese proverb, if you would know the road ahead, ask someone who has traveled it. Yogi Berra, I tell you about his, uh, but then there's another one of these guys that's back a, a thousand years. Publius Sirius said, it is good to learn what to avoid by stu- studying the misfortunes of others. Well, Michael, we really appreciate you being on this iUniverse radio segment. Please tell us how to get your book. Okay. Uh, it's available on Amazon.com. It's available in Barnes & Noble. It is uh, available in a new website that I, we are in the process of building for me. The other place is at, at uh, the publisher's uh, shop where I have a... Uh, uh, a um, a page, and that would be lulu.com, L-U-L-U dot com. There are uh, samples of the writing in that uh, um, presentation, and the book is uh, available within a couple of days, uh, or in some cases, in some of the um, in, uh, bookstores do have an inventory. And anyway, please do... Uh, check with it and if you have any questions there is an email uh, uh, there get, send them to me and I'll be glad to answer you well thank you Michael thank you for being with us well you're welcome Steve I sure appreciated the opportunity that was Michael Stanfield the author of his book move on with Parkinson's an inspiring true story as told by a PD patient and this is brought to you by Author Hive. iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is produced by Toginet Radio. Radio with a cutting edge.